0: Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US. Welcome, Andrew, Nabil and I are your co-host today. We attended MM13 and ASMNGS and wanted to give you some reflections. We've done conferences in person and virtual conferences, and now it looks like in 2022, we are entering a season with hybrid conferences.
1: I was going to start with the question of what were some of the things that didn't work in the various formats of conference we attended over the summer?
2: Well, what I saw didn't work was where you had a room full of 200 people or 400 people and occasionally, some of the speakers were online. And additionally, there were also people online watching. And that didn't work very smoothly at all. And it led to, I think, a lot of issues. So my personal opinion would be that in a conference situation like that, that the speakers are, are in person if all the, mostly the attendees are in person. And then, you you know, you can kind of stream it from there.
0: Yeah, I I kind of like, that situation too like if if we do have a lot of people out I, I prefer not to have somebody online but i'm starting to like in person like if we can have nice conferences that maybe have fewer than 200 people and just have everyone in person that felt actually pretty nice
2: what i found was as soon as they switched over to um like you'd have a session maybe three people will be in person and then one person would be online and what would happen would be Everyone would kind of switch into a different mode immediately, you know, going back to their Zoom mode, and they'd be pulling out their phones and checking them and all this kind of stuff. You, you know, things you wouldn't do if you had a speaker right in front of you, be a lot more respectful. Whereas people are just blatantly, you know, as if they were in their their bedroom or something, you know, on on Zoom, they they were doing things that you would normally do in a conference. So it's a very different way, I think, of working, and people are respected in a very different way because normally everyone is very respectful of a speaker but if they're just online there's no interaction there whatsoever you could just be watching a youtube video you know it's it's quite a different vibe and when there is no interaction between say the chairs for technical reasons and the speaker you had things like massive overruns and questions going back and forth were impossible and you, the The speakers themselves didn't have these visual cues either, you know, of like w- what was the room thinking, and because quite often you can change your talk or you can speed things up or cut things out depending on how you see the crowd react. If everyone looks bored, well, then you know, you should probably change what you're doing right there and then, cut it short, or maybe expand on something. Sometimes people take questions, you know, in the middle of a talk to clarify things. You know, n- none none that happens when it's a kind of a hybrid like that. I think
1: I saw a lot of that as well and found that quite distressing it it really wasn't a good look and i don't think it was very productive what i found with a lot of people is uh, is kind of the reverse to yuli is is people almost having a a visceral reaction when you suggest hybrid conferences or some virtual component to it they just don't want to participate they suddenly say, okay, you know, we've done virtual for so long, I'm fed up with this, I don't wanna even think about it. And I'm not sure if, if the reaction you're, you're describing, Andrew, was because people were just fed up of virtual talks and maybe over time it would come back to something a bit more sane and normal, or maybe it's simply not workable. I kind of, I like the virtual component I like that it provides a, a lot of accessibility. It allows a lot of people. We noticed when we, we ran virtual uh, conferences, it allowed people who normally wouldn't have a chance to speak with some really great science to get up and, and show what they're up to from far-flung p- places in the world. And my fear is that we forget all of that and we go back to the status quo. We really did, it wasn't pleasant having the virtual meetings, but there were good interactions from it as well that we should probably try to integrate into future meetings. So I guess if you listen to all three of us, you've kind of got an idea of who's picked what side.
0: So maybe I'll take it back home just like a little bit because I don't know about you guys, but I've had virtual meetings and hybrid meetings and the virtual meetings have been working at work. That's been fine, but like, have you have you been in a meeting where five people are in the conference room and you're dialing in?
2: Yeah, so I've had that situation where I've been sharing the meeting, say my lab meeting, right? And Nabil would have been physically in the room with the rest of the group with one of these owls. And I've been sharing the meeting remotely and it's really weird. I don't know how it felt for you, Nabeel.
1: It felt fine. It was like Charlie's Angels. You were just up there on the big screen. Talking down to us like gentlemen i have the doomsday device like it was it was great i felt that the interaction was was good and we were able to discuss what needed to be discussed there were some technical stuff with the wi-fi and whatever but that's you know will be something we'll iron out but over time we're going to get better at it
2: okay so charlie angel charlie's angels i'll remember that for the future you know thrown a few quotes. I think
1: I think Charlie you don't actually ever see him so it's not actually the right analogy.
2: I'll turn off my camera.
0: Yeah, so maybe it's more like you're at the UN in the 1960s and Dr Doom calls in, Dr Evil yeah, calls it's, in. It's
2: it's Hank Scorpio. <laughs> it's Hank Scorpio
1: from the Simpsons basically. Or Dr I'll... Evil from Austin Powers, like it it felt a bit
2: like that. So maybe uh, getting back to conferences, you know, like one of the conferences was a big European conference in our field, and then the other was a big American one, obviously over, and that was over in Baltimore this year. And so those are slightly overlapping groups, but with different uh, different attendees. You know, obviously the American one will be very, very heavily North American. The European one is heavily European. So Nabil, you're both of these. What did you find you know, was similar and different. Were they all talking the same stuff, or was there, you know, slight differences or whatever, or are we all just carbon copies of each other on each side of the Atlantic?
1: ASMNGS is more tailored to the public health application. And there's a lot of US government public health people in attendance, and MM is a little is a bit more academic. So you get so you've always had slightly different flavors to what's being discussed, which is really good, because, you know, there's, which is really good, because you get those different aspects. And attending both meetings is definitely worthwhile. What uh, the tone is obviously very different. I, I always find it really interesting in in US meetings, everyone refers to each other by title, everybody is very respectful. And they explain like they did such and such with Dr so-and-so and they really like to give that deference to to other people they identify themselves when they ask questions you know like mark allard fda kind of thing <laughs> like when they stand up and ask a question maybe we shouldn't mention more. <laughs> but you know they might say a doctor such and such from wherever when they ask a question and Imam uh, is is a bit more i think europeans or maybe it's just because it was in the uk we're very very blasé about stuff this sort of everyone's a friend everyone knows each other very light and loose with with the conversation surprisingly in both meetings this year i think because everyone's been locked away for so long because you haven't had you haven't had an in person version of these either of these meetings for about 3 years now everyone was very nice everyone was very happy to be there so the typical kind of sh- like like arguments you would have where someone would stand up and ask a hard question didn't really happen. Everyone was just really, really thrilled to be there and meet everyone again, rather than saying, oh well, you're using CGMST, that's rubbish. It's never gonna work. You guys don't know what you're talking about. That that was well, that tone definitely wasn't Everyone was much, much friendlier. Are
0: you are you saying that you didn't ask any hard questions?
1: I tried a little bit. I when I I, I had this moment in ASM NGS, where I was looking around for one of these grumpy old professors to ask a hard question. And I was like, I don't see any. Where have they all gone? Is it because I don't see any? Is, is the reason because I have to be that
2: person now? <laughs> Just asking these, like, <laughs> asking the hard questions. So I, I have a controversial question for you, right? A few years ago, we had the well-traveled salad and every presentation we had, I know, John Snow's map over the pump handle, you know, cholera outbreak, and we've had like the spotlight overview slide as well. So, was there anything like that this year?
1: There was a lot less poop and a lot more COVID. I think you, I, I, you saw a lot of these colorful tracks of COVID lineages coming and going. That was the the key slide you kept seeing over and over again. It was always different data sets, but you just you always saw that picture you saw a lot of abundant you saw a lot of these stacked bar abundance plots that you expect with metagenomes that was quite ubiquitous and that's it really i can't remember too many too much overlap people have spent a good amount of time away from each other so everyone's doing something slightly different these days and was there much covid there was always i think covid was the elephant in the room there were a few sessions that were specifically for COVID, people talking about covid but i i feel that i can't speak for the organizers but i feel like they deliberately did not want to have the whole show overburdened with with talks about covid and so there were sessions that specifically didn't mention it but it was sort of there in the background of this underlying thing that so one of the common things is is you know can we take the lessons we learned in covid and can we apply it to this organism oh there's this new tool this can we do usher for for other organisms like that that sort of question kept coming up how do we spin this out for for other this thing we learned from COVID for other organisms
2: so i wasn't asking about the science i was asking about it was there much COVID going around at a conference
1: Oh, just COVID. Oh, should we mention that? There was a bit at MM, and there wasn't so much at ASMNGS. ASMNGS would yeah. seem to yeah, be quite br- empty with it.
0: Bring it up, because I'm thinking that the grumpy old professors probably aren't there because they probably don't want to catch COVID. And so did anything happen along those lines?
1: Perhaps. I, I don't know. I can't speak for grumpy old professors everywhere.
2: There, there did seem to be quite a bit of it after the conference, certainly from, from our end.
1: I don't know if it's because it was just simply the first meeting. There was an earlier meeting. So everyone, that was the first international meeting that a lot of people were going to. So by the time you're coming to ASM NGS, you probably got it from elsewhere.
2: Anyway, back back to science, right? So one of the things with COVID, its sequencing is changing and people are doing a lot more wastewater, it seems. Did you notice that in uh, both conferences?
1: Yes. Wastewater is definitely the new hotness. I think if you're not already in it, you've kind of missed the boat though. Everybody and every, every man and this dog has jumped on that bandwagon. And some of it looks really good, really interesting. And they're able to get out some very useful information out of it. What remains for me to be seen is how far can you push this? I mean, COVID lineages are quite stark in, in that data, but will it work for more nuanced things or for other organisms going forward?
2: Well, they're using it to track polio, weren't they?
1: Yeah, I saw a few, I saw a bunch of different applications for it, not just COVID. Anyway, yeah, I mean, people are, are applying it to all sorts of different things at the moment, even, even bacterial things other than viruses.
2: Yeah, I've seen people use it as well, like to track Salmonella typhi within regions and see what, what's there and what's, what's not, which is kind of an interesting way to do it.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting thing to do as long as you actually have a centralized sewage system. Some, some countries don't. So I'm wondering how that'll work, how that'll work as a generalized approach.
2: Yeah, it was, wasn't that in one of the talks that they were in a low-income country and they're collecting sewage from different places and someone pointed out that actually exactly that problem where you know, people have disconnected sewage systems or latrines, or whatever, or more informal networks rather than government-run sewers, and that could well, bias. Yeah, zones. I mean,
1: it's quite common to have septic septic tank systems elsewhere where you don't have centralized sewage. Like it just, it doesn't. It's not a thing of wealth. It's it, it it's just a thing of the infrastructure, the logistics of the of the place you're in.
2: I guess and, it's a signature of urbanization.
1: Yeah, exactly, and, and population density to make it viable. But I'm curious what you do in that case, because what what people were pointing to is one of the key benefits of wastewater is because it's intrinsically an unidentifiable substance that makes it, that means that you don't have any sort of ethical clearances or or problems with it, because there's no way you can go back and identify an individual person from that. And it's often, it can be more cost-effective to kind of take that approach as well there are very clever ways that you can look at other attributes of a sample and determine the population size, for instance, and sort of use this as a, as, a, as a surveillance strategy.
2: I remember years ago, there was a study on antibiotic resistance genes found in wastewater and distance from a local hospital. And as you got further away from the local hospital, you got less and less and less. It was something crazy. It might have been vancomycin genes, something like that. but it's quite interesting the kind of things you can do with, with wastewater surveillance, particularly if you have lots of different points and you compare them to each other? I will
1: point that out actually. Wastewater, I'll clarify that because wastewater surveillance as a method has is is old. It's at least a decade old. People have been doing this for a very long time and kudos for them for doing it before it was cool and and hot. But what the step changes is, is that I saw in, in the different meetings was people not doing it as a sort of rep- retrospective academic study, but trying to immediately use this as a real-time surveillance approach. That's the thing that's changed in the last year or so, thanks to. And that obviously is a slightly different dynamic of how you you know you sort of do that analysis.
2: And but you see people. Wastewater,
1: wastewater is old. Like wastewater studies have been around for a long time, and people have been doing it for a long time.
2: And with COVID, you see people posting on Twitter, you know, like uh, charts of how things are happening in the local area from the wastewater, you know, oh, COVID is going to go down, you know, COVID is going down at the moment because we're seeing a dip or it's going up, you know, or this is the leading edge before we see a surge.
1: Yeah, we should point that out. When, when we were doing the COVID sequencing, we were handling both community samples and hospital samples, and the lag time was about, should we say, three weeks, Andrew, between we around that
2: it it varied but I guess if someone is infected and then they get sick enough to go to hospital and then the hospital takes a sample and then sends it to us yeah it's, it's probably two weeks or three weeks from when they were infected
1: yeah so if that's your if if you're comparing your wastewater surveillance to your hospital surveillance you are gaining that I think you're able to gain that time back you're able to 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 be three weeks earlier with your reporting so that that's a big advantage, I think, because at that because by the time it's in the hospital, it's the horse is bolted from the stable. Like this that lineage is everywhere. There's nothing you can do about it, I think.
0: There was a there was like a tweet like a couple months ago that I really liked. I, I'll try to dig it up where it was like someone said, I only I only pay attention to the second derivative of the wastewater samples <laughs> to, to check my community level. <laughs>
1: yes i remember <laughs> that too but i can't remember the context but that was a good point
0: i would agree going back to what you said that that people were doing wastewater 10 years ago or like yeah
1: i mean he, it was it was pyro sequencing back then if you recall
0: oh okay yeah probably <laughs> 10 years ago and and oh, like longer a, than,
1: sorry longer than 10 years ago i'm thinking circa 2009 to like you know around that time you had people doing with 454
0: And and like I think it was DTU was doing metagenomics on airplanes going around the world on on those toilet samples. But but I agree. Like it like each of those things was just a like an isolated academic snapshot. And now we're seeing it like actually put in into production. And I think that's a huge shift. That is that is really amazing.
1: Yeah, it's a huge shift and it's it's also, it's a different, it's a different question and how you approach it is slightly different as well, I think, but that's the emerging area like that. That's the new thing. I don't want to, I don't want people to, I don't want people to think that we're saying wastewater sequencing is new. That's not new, but the real time aspect of it is what's new.
0: Yeah. And doing it regularly, not just for a publication, like doing it for actual public health.
1: It's not just the publication. Lee. Okay. Okay. The
2: currency of academia. Yeah, I live. we live and die on, on publications here, Lee. So was anyone talking about what we're going to do with these millions upon millions or tens of millions of COVID genomes that now exist? I think it just, it
1: underlines this consistent problem that I've seen at both meetings for many, many sessions, which is that a genome is only worth the contextual metadata that goes along with it. And that was a recurring theme throughout. It's always a recurring theme. We need to have better standards for the metadata we collect. We need to be more consistent with it. We need to have proper data stewards so people you can contact if you have questions about data, this entire infrastructure around that needs to be stepped up. And we've been saying this for years and years and years. And that just comes to the fore when you have at that time, 14 million COVID genomes, and there actually isn't very much you can do with it retrospectively now, based on the information that's the the sort of limited information that's available for quite a lot of those data.
2: Well, surely, if you have big data sets like that, you can just throw machine learning at it and solve everything.
1: Yeah, and, and I've seen a few attempts at this, and it doesn't seem very convincing, to be honest. Really, it's, it's metadata. It's, this, this, isn't, this is an old story, metadata. and it, But it just slaps you in the face with the COVID genomics where the volume of genomic data and you're still not able to, to say certain
2: things. But at least there is a phage location for SARS-CoV-2. Even if people don't use it, it still does exist. No,
1: it, it, it exists and it is used because it's integrated now into, into the INSDC. So it is a spec you can pull down and just use it.
2: Well, I mean, in terms of actually using it and in terms of putting data in rather than just using one or two fields out of a hundred.
1: I'm going to keep pushing that idea. I've always pushed that idea. And I think a lot of us do, which is how, how did, it's, it's not difficult really to, to, think about what fields are meaningful and how you describe your samples. And there are existing specifications you can adapt for your project. It, it sort of, it boggles the mind why people continue to refuse to see the light and actually realize that the metadata is very important. I did say at the at MM in, in the panel discussion that I was participating in, that I can take all of the genomes all the salmonella genomes in the world, but I can't do anything with it. If there's no information around how it was collected, where it was collected and in what context, what was the disease state, what happened to the patient, what happened to the animal, where in the factory is it? If I don't know that it's just little tips on a tree, it's meaningless, absolutely meaningless and you're spending, what's the going rate for a genome these days, 50 pounds, hundred pounds per isolate. It's, it's, it's money. It's, it's, a good, it's a good chunk of money. I wouldn't just throw it away. And then you're at the last minute you fall down. you just don't put that metadata together with it. And people might talk about being scooped. people might talk about not making, you know they don't want people access to it, but that's fine. But you know you've got to remember one of the people who are going to digest that data later is you. <laughs> you're going to come back to those genomes in a few years with another project and be like, oh, I can't do anything with this
2: absolutely and one thing about metadata is you can do as much as you can but if you don't have like consistent ontologies and on top of that as well you know it's it's going to be less than useless if if you keep spelling i don't know country names wrong and, and things like that you're just going to spend forever just doing data cleaning and and things like that
1: yeah, so that was an issue raised at MM, and there was a specific couple of talks that went after this in ASM NGS to focus on this problem. And it does require a lot of thought because when you think about something complicated, like if you think about a factory, a food or you think about an abattoir, you think about a farm, you have a shed and you're saying, where was it sampled? How do you describe the site? of where it was sampled? How do you describe the proximity of that to the actual host animals? Or even something more simple, like at what point in in the food production line do you move away from saying that the isolate was collected from the carcass of the animal versus an actual food product? So, you know, is, is it when it's just the animal's still alive or the plant is still there and then it's, or it's been partially processed, it's been cut up, or is it when it's been crumbed and boxed, is that when it becomes, you know, and where do you draw the line on, on those points in the production chain? And everyone has a slightly different opinion. So it's really important to discuss with your, with your collaborators even, what do they think? are you all on the same page with this? And this was a topic that came up over and over again throughout these meetings. It always comes up throughout these meetings and it's not a solved problem.
0: So let's say that you're somebody who is in, in the middle of a study and you're listening to this conversation right now. What are the fixes that you need to make right now to adhere to the, to the phage spec to put in the right amount of metadata? Well, you know,
1: I don't have to strictly play with the phage spec, This phage spec that's out there is 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 specifically talking about SARS-CoV-2, but you need to think about like how in, intuitively capturing the how, when, what, why questions of your particular sample, you need to think about, there's a difference between, so for instance, the most important piece of metadata ever is the collection date, For anything you want to do, you need to know the collection date. And when you write, you know, 2022, it does, do you mean it's anywhere in 2022? Like you don't know beyond that? Or do you know if you see a date in a, in a sample, say it's you know, the 27th of, of February 2022, then do you know that it is exactly that date? or has someone added some jitter to it to make it a bit more vague people do do that people kind of pick a ra- it's it's they they know the actual date and then they pick something that's roughly within a week or two of that date just to sort of make it a bit obscure so you can't identify a patient or something like that do you know if that's happened do you know that that date is truly the exact date or do you know if there's a chance that it's been bungled by excel or something in some conversion problem and it's actually not that precise it's really or important. or even
2: worse it could be like an american version of dates yeah if it's
1: is it this if is it the 5th of july or is it the you know 7th of may like <laughs> you don't know so you need to sort of be sure to what precision your metadata exists
0: everyone should be on iso 8601
1: that would help Yeah, that's a simple fix. Make all your dates ISO 8601, please. I'll
0: I'll tell you, there are some, without giving away too much information, there are some organisms where they are very rare in the US. And if we did put in all the metadata, then it might give away personally identifiable information, so we don't do that. But we do have an upload date because there is a date that we upload the sample, and sometimes we'll, we'll mix in some retrospective isolates to actually protect personally identifiable information and people, it it kind of clouds the data so people can't use the upload date as the date of infection. So they can't identify the people.
1: Yeah. So (laughs) it's just, it's just understanding that there might've been not to take those, those information at face value. I mean that if you're going halfway through a project, I think that's the most important thing to remember. The other one that's a common issue is a lot of, You know, gene records, you can find out that in public databases have the GPS. They have the latitude, longitude. And you think, oh, that's fantastic. I can put it on a map. And then you realize what the person's actually done is they've picked the country, United Kingdom, say, or the US or whatever, and the GPS has been auto-filled. And because the resolution is only down to the country level, the, the pin is just dropped in the center of that country.
2: There is a problem with that so if you take the state of palestine the midpoint for that country is israel which is totally uncontroversial so yeah there is there is an issue i think there is issues with that and there is issues with
1: people taking those those gps coordinates at face value and it's, you just have to check is it actually just not the midpoint of the country some people try to be quite clever and they say oh well it, the likelihood of where the sample came from, if it's from a patient or something, it's going to be around the largest population center. So you might find UK samples, and they're just automatically in London, because where else would it be?
2: Yeah, I hear uh, Collindale in London is a hotbed of infectious diseases. It's also the uh, you know headquarters of UKHSA, the main public health body. Where's it's samples, this <laughs>
1: sort of gets automatically assigned to that. I mean, you've just got to be mindful of these funny things with metadata, I guess.
2: So something that I saw mentioned at MM was people are a little bit worried about platforms. And in particular, one of the main commercial providers is ending support. So I'm wondering, what are people going to move to after after that ends?
1: I spoke to different people. I think people listening in will either know the story or not. But I spoke to different people and it's not quite clear yet. People are still looking around trying to come up with a solution. The feeling I got is people want to move to a solution that they have more control over. So something open source and transparent would would be the preference. But once you move into that space and you say, okay, well, it's going to be open source and community driven, where do you find the money for that? Because research councils do not like to pay money for maintaining platforms, they want to see new fantastic research. So then they're out of the picture. So then where does the funding get, to? where do you get funding support for larger platforms? And we've changed in terms of genomics. I remember these ASMNGS meetings, like the first one we're talking 2015 or 2018, when, when it started out that people would just write a pipeline and they just put it up on GitHub and say, okay, I wrote this like in a week, here you go, it solves the problem. And it does solve the problem, and that's fine. Like the maintenance of that is fairly straightforward. But now in both meetings, I'm seeing very complicated end-to-end platforms for genomic epidemiology. And these require proper developers and proper support and tech support and help desks and all of that. And that somebody has to pay the piper somewhere. And there was an open question, particularly in MM, of how you're going to fund this into the future.
2: And when you move into public health, it's not just writing an academic quality pipeline. You need validation, like serious validation, a lot of documentation, every change has to be tracked. It's a whole different ballgame. You can't just knock something up on a plane, as you say, and, and then throw it into production immediately. Like it is a much longer road and it has to work.
1: It has to work consistently. Yeah. You put the same sample in and it's the same answer every time. It has to be consistent.
0: Yeah, there are very and few it, people doing that kind of stuff. Did, did anyone speak up to, to say that they, they are able to sustain something like that at these conferences?
1: Not at MM. I think some of the vendors at ASM NGS would like to say that they would and seem to be moving in that direction, but their offering is quite different. I, I had to realize in that MM panel that, that it works, both, it, it's a double-edged sword. So if I took something like, you know, a platform, I wrote Entrabase 2, Electric Boogaloo, if I do get it accredited for public health use, I can't change it. And it's like, no, I want to change it because I'm a tinkering bioinformatician. I like changing things. So I don't want to do that. <laughs> I don't want to be involved in that. That's not my, that, that's not my interest as much as it would be possibly lucrative or very helpful. I I want to keep playing with my scripts.
2: Well, you don't want to support the same software for the next 20 years? No,
1: I don't want to support the same software for the next 20 years.
2: I guess this speaks to the power of commercial companies because you can have a team of developers working on stuff and doing the kind of, I guess, the boring stuff, you know, just keeping it running and keeping it going. In a consistent manner and updating stuff when it needs to, but just leaving it alone and giving people who are non-technical experts support and how to get things working in their own environments. You know, that's there's a lot of work like and in research we don't want to do that because it there's no glory in it, there's no papers in it, there's no anything in it for us. Yeah, no in a th-
1: way, these platforms need to be institutionalized.
0: Yeah, th- I think that like Google or somebody like that has like a term for this where. They only want like the novel stuff. I'm trying to remember that the term is, it's like you you only get rewarded for novel things and then you move away to a different team or something. And then Google eventually cancels your product.
1: Yeah, that is that is that is an issue with a lot of tech. And they, they engineer some really, really cool stuff, not being able to transfer it or commercialize it. And yeah, it just sort of dissolves. It doesn't have legs basically even though it's really, really cool on, on the engineering side, it's really fantastic stuff. So it's almost like, as if you have to, you have to design it with your audience in mind, which is basically what we never do. We always write stuff for ourselves to solve a problem in that moment. So I don't know how we reconcile this. It might be not possible to do so.
0: I mean, I, I guess the funding has to be there, but I won't, I won't go further on that for conflict of interest, but I mean, it, Definitely have to be some kind of public entity trying to, to fund individual projects to keep them going long-term, probably.
1: I, I suppose so. I don't know. And that was, I think that was left as an open question.
0: Well, thanks for listening to us just talk it through. We went to a couple of conferences. <laughs> we talked about how how we thought about hybrid meetings and virtual meetings and in-person meetings. Talked, to, talked it through a little bit with different topics we saw at the conferences and thank you so much thank you so much for listening to us at home if you like this podcast please subscribe and rate us on itunes spotify soundcloud or the platform of your choice follow us on twitter at MicroBinfi. and if you don't like this podcast please don't do anything this podcast was recorded by the microbial bioinformatics group the opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.